Welcome back to the Locust Grove podcast. You are listening to our Wednesday night Bible study series, What is the Gospel? We have moved past the basic formula of the gospel, which is God as creator and judge, man as sinful reveler, and Jesus Christ as Messiah and Savior, into our response to that formula, to that gospel message through faith and repentance. And now this week, we come to the study of the kingdom. In some ways, the kingdom of God is complicated to wrap our minds around. In other ways, it's incredibly simple because the kingdom of God is an already not yet kingdom. In week one of our two-week study on the kingdom of God, we look at the already aspect of God's kingdom the aspect of God's kingdom that we are experiencing here and now. We hope that you are challenged and encouraged by what you hear. Our study tonight, of course, we are continuing this study of what is the gospel. We just wrapped up our two-week section on response. We talked about responding in faith, and we talked about responding last week with repentance. Uh, Now we sort of move into a a new phase, if you will, and we're really going to talk about uh, maybe the the results of the gospel in in some sense, the reward of the gospel, if you will. We're going to begin talking about the kingdom tonight. What is this gospel kingdom? Uh, The gospel kingdom that has been promised and the gospel kingdom that has already been realized when I was doing quite a bit of consultation with churches, I visited a church one time uh, that had this bronze, bronze plaque sort of uh, on the sidewalk between the parking lot and the front door. And on the plaque, uh, there was uh, really the immortal words of a famous missionary by the name of Jim Elliott. Here's the quote that was on that plaque. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I love that quote uh, because it really captures so well, I believe, both the cost and the reward of being a Christian. Captures so well that uh, that cost of discipleship and yet the reward of discipleship. And there's no doubt that being a Christian is a costly thing, right? I mean, if we think... If we think to what Jesus was saying in Luke chapter 14, verse 28, you don't have to turn there, but He's talking about, uh, or what He talks about is, is counting the cost before you build a tower, right? Any man in his right mind is going to count the cost before he builds a tower. But it's also true that uh, the rewards of being a Christian, uh, prayerfully, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you would agree with this, uh, the rewards are uh, what we might say inexpressibly awesome, Right? It truly is an apt description, the rewards of being a a Christian. It's it's truly awesome. It's awesome now, and it's going to be really awesome uh, in eternity, right? We we have that hope. We're going to talk about that, uh, the the hope of our future, more next week. We're going to talk more about the present reality of the kingdom uh, tonight, and I'll say more about that in just a moment. But when we think about uh, the awesome benefits of being a Christian, right, being in relationship with Jesus, being a disciple of Christ, we obviously think about... 
the forgiveness of sins, right? We think about adoption, right? What it means to be adopted as God's children. What it means to be in relationship with Jesus. We think about uh, the gift of the Holy Spirit. We think about freedom from the tyranny of sin. And of course, hopefully you think about the fellowship of the church. We then, of course, minds should go to that final resurrection and glorification of the body and inclusion in God's eternal kingdom, right? Those new heavens and those new earth and the new earth that we read about in the book of Revelation. We think about eternity in God's presence, right? Seeing His face and, and, and all of these promises being fulfilled that God has made us in Christ. Those, right, that's, a, that's a pretty long list, but it's really only a fraction of the list of the benefits that we have from being a part of the kingdom of God in Christ. Now I want you to look, uh, if you want to turn over with me, just we're going to flip to a couple different verses tonight, but 1 Corinthians chapter 2 is where, where I want to begin here. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And, uh, and here in Paul's letter to uh, the Corinthians, he is, in, in this instance, he is, he's actually quoting from the prophet Isaiah. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 9. First Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, Paul writes, But as it is written, I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love Him. You haven't seen them. You haven't heard them. It's not even entered into your heart how incredible the things that God has prepared for us. Now, I think this is pretty easily understood by most of us. Maybe we don't always think about what this means for us um, in, in practical experience, but uh, the, the, Christian, the Christian life is not just about making sure you avoid God's wrath. Now, as a Christian, we have the incredible gift of avoiding God's wrath. But I guess what I'm saying is Christianity is way more than the get-out-of-jail-free card, right? That's not the primary purpose of our Christianity. I would say it's not even the primary benefit. It is an incredibly important benefit, uh, but the, the gifts of God are uh, and, and, and the experience of His kingdom, not only now but in the future, uh, really are, are, are this complete, uh, all-inclusive picture of the kingdom of God and the benefits uh, that, that, that come to those who receive, respond to the gospel. Now, when we think about the kingdom of God, we're going to answer some, I think, maybe basic but important questions tonight. We're going to continue answering those questions next week, and maybe they become a little... Uh, maybe they become a little less basic, but nonetheless important as, as we move forward. But when we think about the Christian life, and we start to think about the Christian life not just in terms of a get-out-of-jail-free card or just in terms of avoiding God's wrath, we, we should be thinking about the Christian life in terms of being in a right relationship with God. We should be thinking about the Christian life as a life where we have the privilege of enjoying a right relationship with God for all eternity. Uh, that is to say, going back to the quote I shared just a moment ago, it's about gaining what cannot be lost, right? Giving up what we cannot keep, gaining what we 
uh, cannot lose by becoming a citizen of God's eternal kingdom. Now from the moment a person becomes a believer in Jesus Christ, everything in his life changes forever. Right? That when you go back to that very moment, that, that, that very instant, right? And, and, and sometimes we get this confused in our practice. The moment you were saved was the very moment that you knew that you were a hopeless sinner and your only hope was Jesus the Savior. Right? It, it, it didn't, it, it, you didn't have to come to this altar or any other altar, right? You, you didn't have to get saved in an altar. You didn't have to repeat uh, some, sort, some certain formula. No, the very moment that you knew you were a hopeless sinner and your only hope was the Savior, Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, and resurrected. You're saved, right? And everything changes. Now, for different people, this looks different ways. Sometimes the physical change, right? The, uh, the way, the things we practice, sometimes it happens slower for some people than it does others. But eternally speaking, with the eternal picture in mind, everything changes in an instant. Right? Your eternal hope changes in an instant, in that very moment. Now, <clears throat> excuse me. Even, even if you've been a Christian for years, if you've been a Christian for decades, we, we sort of fall into these seasons where maybe sometimes it doesn't feel like everything's changed like it should have, right? Maybe we get frustrated with our own behavior, our own habits, our, uh, our own way of thinking, right? And, and, to, to be honest, even when we think about our salvation experience, right? When you, when you think about being saved, um, compared to the scene in heaven, the scene here is a little bit subdued, right? Now there's all kinds of positive emotions attached to your salvation experience. And, and all of us have unique stories and it's incredible, but um, and, unless I'm mistaken, I don't think anyone had like heavenly confetti starting to fall out of the sky, right? There uh, weren't angels blasting trumpets, at least not here, there are in heaven, but right, we, we don't see any of that. And so the scene here uh, on earth, the scene in, in our physical presence is certainly subdued compared to the scene in heaven. But... It's all true, nonetheless, everything changes, right? God has delivered us. Paul says, if you remember when we were studying the book of Colossians, over in Colossians 1, chapter 13, he says essentially uh, that God has delivered us, right, through Christ from the dominion of darkness, and He's done what? He's transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. That's that change, that transfer out of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of His beloved Son. And it's not, right, we, we know this is this is... This is common to all of us, elementary for all of us. It's not just we flip a switch and all of a sudden we're perfect, right? We talked about the process of sanctification the last couple of weeks, uh, but, but our eternity is set, right? It is a gift that cannot be taken away. But now let's begin to get into these questions concerning the kingdom of God because for everyone in this room, when I use the phrase kingdom of God, that's not a new phrase to you, right? This, sitting in the pew tonight, it's not the first time you've ever heard the phrase kingdom of God. It's used commonly in Scripture. Uh, we use it commonly in our uh, discourse with one another. But, but let me ask you, what is the kingdom of God? Right now, you don't have to answer to me tonight, but just sitting there thinking, uh, if you left this place and uh, you went out into the parking lot and someone's just standing out there and says, well, let me ask you a question. What is the kingdom of God? Right? How, how would you describe it? How would you respond? 
Now there's really two aspects of the kingdom of God that we're going to talk about uh, the next two weeks. This is a, a, some terminology that maybe you have or have not heard before, uh, but we really... Um, in evangelical, conservative evangelical Christian circles, we refer to the kingdom of God as the already, not yet kingdom. And I think that's exactly what Scripture teaches, isn't it? Uh, that there are already aspects of God's kingdom that Christians experience, but there are also uh, facets and uh, portions of God's kingdom that we have not yet experienced, right? There are still... Uh, there are still some pieces, if you will, of God's kingdom that we are awaiting uh, to experience. But there are portions of God's kingdom that we are experiencing now. And, and just to help you connect the dots a little bit, when you come back here on Sunday morning, we're going to be talking about the last part of John chapter 17, the last part of that departing prayer from Jesus. And our focus is really going to be on His prayer for the church. And if you notice, if you read ahead on that, or if you have read ahead on on that. Really the primary focus is unity and we talked a little bit about unity last week but we're going to talk a whole lot about unity in the local church on Sunday morning and you'll, you'll notice that, that these two ideas are very much related. The unity of the local church is so important because it's actually the unity of the local church that gives a, a, a picture, if you will, of one of the already aspects of God's kingdom. And so a, a little clue there to help you connect some dots um, even, even this weekend as we gather back together. And so there's these two aspects, the already, that is what portions of God's kingdom, what aspects of God's kingdom are we already experiencing right now? And then what parts of God's kingdom are we uh, waiting to experience? We have not yet experienced. And so tonight, uh, really just briefly now, I want us to, to focus primarily on the already aspect of God's kingdom. But let's start by answering this question, what is the kingdom of God? Again, it's, it's an important theme, right? If you read the New Testament, you will notice the kingdom of God being mentioned time and time again. In fact, Jesus Himself preached about it constantly, right? Uh, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. We, the kingdom of God is at hand, right? We talked about uh, that uh, actually the last couple of weeks, but even last week, he, that, that, that very call, if you will, that introductory to, introduction to ministry uh, is repeated in multiple Gospels. But if you will, flip over to Acts 28, verse 31. Acts 28, verse 31. Dr. Luke is summarizing Paul's ministry here, and I want you to see what he says. Acts 28, verse 31. He writes, Preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding Him. So how did he summarize Paul's ministry? Preaching the kingdom of God. Now, we all know Paul had a pretty influential ministry, right? Uh, so much so that he is, um, he, a third of the New Testament is accredited to his authorship. And so when you think about trying to summarize that ministry, it seems like quite the task. But Luke does it very simply. He preached the kingdom of God and he taught those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ. So that tells me this idea of the kingdom of God must be pretty significant. 
must be pretty important for me to understand the kingdom of God if, this, if, if the Apostle Paul, who, uh, who, whose writing has, has offered us so much of the New Testament, whose missionary journeys went so far in establishing the New Testament church uh, and making Christianity possible really all throughout the world, even, even beyond uh, the immediate area where he was able to travel, it's important for us to really understand what this kingdom is if preaching this kingdom is the way his ministry was summarized. Now the author of Hebrews um, would go on over in Hebrews chapter 12. Again, you don't have to turn to these. I want to look at three real quickly. You can if you want to. Uh, the fact that believers in Christ are receiving a kingdom that uh, the author of Hebrews describes it as one that cannot be shaken. Right? And so now we're, we're, this is what Paul preached, but now this kingdom of God is also a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Uh, Peter encouraged his readers with the thought of being richly welcomed into verse, uh, chapter 1 verse 11 of 2 Peter, the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So it's an eternal kingdom. It's the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Then in the book of Revelation over in chapter 12, all of the host of heaven erupt in praise saying, now the salvation and the power of the kingdom of God and the authority of His Christ have come. And so we get some more clues about what this kingdom is, but can we still really narrow down what exactly is the kingdom of God? I mean, is it a, is it a realm? Is it a, is it a piece of real estate that God has some sort of special authority over? Is it, is it the church, right? The capital C church, the global church? Is it, is it, as we've said, is it something that's just here and now? Or is it something that we're waiting for? Or is it, is it both, right? Something that, will, that is now and that will come in the future. Um, and then I think as you start to try to answer these questions or think about all the questions that you may have about the kingdom of God, I think we end up having to ask, who exactly is the kingdom of God, right? How, do we, how are they set apart? How do we know? Because when you start thinking about the kingdom of God in the New Testament, it seems that New Testament writers, or Jesus, when He's speaking about the kingdom of God, it seems that He's speaking about a very specific people, right? But then we also think about God's authority, and we acknowledge that God has authority over all people, right? Over all creation. There is no one who is outside of God's authority, and so it maybe makes us ask the question, doesn't, God, doesn't God's rule extend over everyone regardless of whether or not they believe in Jesus? Um, now, I want us to try to, to get at some of these questions by, by, by just noticing a few different things that Scripture teaches about the kingdom. And some of these we'll be able to answer now, and then some of them we'll, we'll, get, we'll get into next week. But first, I want to, want to submit to you tonight that the kingdom of God is God's redemptive rule over His people. That the kingdom of God is God's redemptive rule over His people. And so this is one way I believe the Scripture is trying to get us to understand the kingdom of God. That it is God's redemptive rule over His people. Now, again, kingdom just in and of itself, is one of those words that in, I'm just going to say the human language, because regardless of, of whether it's been uh, English or Latin or Greek or uh, Hebrew, uh, the word kingdom 
has some very strong connotations, if you will. Uh, there's some very easy ways uh, that people tend to confuse the way the word kingdom can be defined. Now, um, as, as humans, usually we think about, when we think about a kingdom, we do think about a particular plot of land with well-defined, uh, with a well-defined set of borders, right? We think of kingdom as a geographical word, right? And so we think about um, the kingdoms of history. We may even think about nations as kingdoms, right? And in one sense of the word, they are. In one sense of the word, the United States of America is a kingdom. But that's not the case in the Bible. When the Bible talks about a kingdom, it's not talking about a kingdom this way. Biblically speaking, the kingdom of God is best understood more as a kingship, if you will, rather than a kingdom. Right? So it's better to actually think about it uh, for our purposes in the way we sort of define or maybe even sometimes misdefine the word kingdom as a kingship. Right, God's kingdom, therefore we would say, is God's rule and reign and authority. I think if you want to turn there, you can over to Psalms 145 uh, verse 13. Psalm 145 verse 13. 13, the psalmist writes, Thy kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and thy dominion endureth throughout all generations. Right? It's an expansive kingdom. It's not just a geographical area. This is more about God's kingship than what we would perceive as a physical kingdom. Now there's another crucial word that we need to add to our definition, and I've already done that, and I hope that you picked up on it. Because it's really important for how the Bible talks about kingdom. God's kingdom is not just His rule and reign. Okay, It's not just His rule and reign. It is His redemptive rule and reign. I think that word redemptive rule and reign is incredibly important for the way we understand and define the kingdom of God. Right, It is the loving sovereignty that He exercises over His own people. So we're talking about the kingdom of God. We are talking about His redemptive rule and reign. That is the rule and reign that He has over His redeemed people. Now, of course, again, it it is absolutely true that there is not one square inch of this universe, not one single person that is independent of God's rule or somehow outside of His authority. Everything that is, that has been created, is under His authority. There is only one who has not been created, and that is God Himself. Everything else is created, and therefore every created thing is under His authority. He created all things, He rules over all things, and ultimately we know He will judge all things, specifically all people. But when the Bible uses the phrase, kingdom of God, it's usually not referring to all of the created order. Typically, when the Bible uses that phrase, the kingdom of God, it is referring very specifically to God's rule over His own people, over those who have been adopted into His family, over those who He calls children, sons and daughters, and those who call Him Father. The kingdom of God, very simply put, is talking about those who have been saved through Christ. Uh, Most frequently when we see this term, 
in the Scriptures. This is exactly what is being referred to. Therefore, Paul talks about Christians, as I said in Colossians 1, being transferred from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of Christ. Right? He's very careful to point out that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God. As a matter of fact, he, when he's sort of rebuking the church in Corinth, and I've said this before, but if you think, if you think our church has problems, or you think our church has had problems, or you think our church is going to have problems, just read 1 Corinthians and you'll be incredible, incredibly thankful for our church. But Paul's rebuking them, right? Uh, for, for their uh, misbehavior, for their malpractice, if you will. He, he does all of that, and then ultimately it becomes a very encouraging letter, and the second letter to the Corinthians does the same thing. But he's very careful to point out that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God. And that's significant, right? Because that tells us when he's talking about the kingdom of God, he's talking about a very specific people. He's not talking about a kingdom that we just inherit uh, by the fact that we are simply created beings, right? He's not talking about a kingdom that all who are under God's authority will inherit because there are literally right now millions and millions and even billions of people who are under God's authority, but who will not inherit the kingdom of God. Right? It's a, it's a challenge to us. It's a, it's a motivator for us for why we ought to be doing missions. Now, as we think about the kingdom of God, as we think about trying to define it simply, it is God's redemptive rule, reign, and authority over those who have been redeemed by Jesus. And so that gives us a little bit of a foundation to build off of as we fill out our definition of God's kingdom. And so now let's talk a little bit about the already aspect of God's kingdom. We might call this a kingdom that has come, right? There's a kingdom that there's a part of the kingdom that will come, but there's a part of the kingdom that has come, right? And so we can say very much, with very much confidence, based on what we see in Scripture, that the kingdom of God is indeed here. It's here. It's present, right? But how is it present? How is it here? What does this really mean? Uh, we see this in Jesus' own words. I've already referenced it, right? You, again, multiple Gospels. Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Right? Not that the kingdom of God is still yet to come. Not that the kingdom of God will one day be here. But Jesus says, no, the kingdom of God is at hand. As a result, you should repent. And we've seen over the last couple of weeks, as we really this whole time as we've been studying the gospel, uh, or what is the gospel, we, we've seen really what a stunning claim this is that Jesus is making, that the kingdom of God has come, right? We've talked about how for centuries the Jews had been waiting, hoping, praying for the dawning of the kingdom, for the dawning of the kingdom of God, for the day when God's rule would be established on the earth and His people would be finally and fully vindicated. And now here is Jesus, right? This Nazarene carpenter turned teacher telling them that the day they've been waiting for for centuries has come, that it is here. Now, really this is an incredible thought. Because now we're, our attention turns to the incarnation of Jesus. right? It, it, Jesus is immediately saying, listen, with my arrival, the kingdom has arrived. And so we understand now, as we think about the incarnation in light of the kingdom of God, we understand that it was about much more than just uh, 
uh, some sort of kind visit from our Creator, right? Jesus coming to this earth, uh, becoming 100% man while remaining 100% God was about more than just the Creator of all things visiting the creation, right? It, what Jesus is saying, this is the launching pad. This is the moment that establishes it all. This is where, where God is launching a full and final counter-offensive against all of the sin, all of the death, and all of the destruction that had entered the world since Adam had fallen, since Adam had sinned. Right? This is the inauguration of a kingdom. But really, now we're looking at the kingdom as a counter-offensive. Right? It's a counter-attack. It is time to bring an end to the rule and the reign of Satan. Now, you can see um, this, this war, if you will, happening all over the story of Jesus' life in the New Testament. Right? We see King Jesus go alone in the wilderness uh, to, to sort of do battle with Satan, right? And he hands it to Satan, right? He, he, he defeats Satan in uh, the, 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 the wilderness, right? Decisively defeats him by using the Word of God, right? By establishing this standard, if you will. We see him touching the, the eyes of a man that was born blind and, and light enters those eyes immediately for the very first time. He stares into the, the sad blackness of a tomb and says, Lazarus, come forth, and their death is defeated. And then, of course, ultimately, he himself goes into the darkness of a tomb. And yet, on that third day, when the ladies return to the tomb, what does the angel say? He's gone. He is not here. Fully and finally defeating death. And so we see death's grip failed entirely. Right? When, when that angel said, who are you looking for? Who do you seek? Why are you seeking, what did the angel say? The living among the dead. And so step by step, blow by blow, Jesus was decisively rolling back the deadly effects of the fall of man. The rightful king of the world had come. That's what he's talking about when he says the kingdom of God is at hand. And everything that had stood in the way of the establishment of this kingdom, all of the sin, all of the death, Hell, Satan, all of it was being decisively overcome. Now, what this means is that many of the blessings of the kingdom are already ours because Jesus' death has already decided the fate of Satan. Jesus' resurrection has already decided the fate of death. And so that means that uh, the kingdom uh, and aspects of the kingdom are already ours to be experiencing right now. So Jesus tells His disciples that He will send them... What did he, we saw this in John. What did He say He was going to send? He's going to send them a comforter, right? The Holy Spirit is proof that the kingdom of God is at hand, right? That the kingdom of God is already, that, that it is here and now. The, the Spirit is a benefit of the kingdom of God. The, the comforter who will guide the disciples, who will convict the disciples of sin, who will work out the process of sanctification in the disciples. And so, in the same way, uh, Christians know even now 
uh, what it is to have, have been adopted into God's family, to be reconciled to Him. That's what it means for you and I, of course, to be a Christian. It's what it means to respond to the gospel in faith and repentance like we talked about the last few weeks. Paul even says that in God's eyes, we are already raised up and seated with Christ. That's what he told the church in Ephesus. In God's eyes, it's already finished. Right? In God's eyes, it's already a done deal. You are already seated with Christ. Right? It's that gift that you cannot lose. We give up what we could not keep, which was our own life, in order to gain what we could not lose, which is eternal life in the kingdom of God. Now, I'm not going to go into it in more detail uh, tonight because I believe it, uh, it really the Gospel of John, Jesus' prayer in the Gospel of John, John chapter 17, uh, covers it so much. But really... The local church should be an expression of God's kingdom come. We should be a physical expression to our neighbors and to the nations of what it means for Jesus to have said, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. And the fact of the matter is, uh, every church is a representation to the kingdom of God whether they're a healthy church or an unhealthy church, a good church or a bad church. When a lost and dying world looks at the church, that church is the only visible representation they have of the kingdom of God. Right? Jesus doesn't have a castle built somewhere. He doesn't have a throne on this earth yet. And so when a lost and dying world is looking for what the kingdom of God looks like, they look at the local church. And if it's, un, if it's an unhealthy local church, if it's a local church that is not united, they get a very poor picture of the kingdom of God. But if it's a healthy church, if it's a united church, if it's, if it's disciples of Christ who are united together in Christ and understand and are experiencing the, ben, the, the already benefits of the kingdom, then what they get is an unmistakable an unquestionable, an undeniable picture of the kingdom of God, and it's unlike anything they have ever seen before. Truly, I believe there is no way, there is no way for people to look at the gospel, to, to think about the kingdom of God, and to not be enticed by it when they see a healthy local church. But I also understand the dangers that unhealthy local churches present. Because again, as an expression of the already aspect of the kingdom of God, the local church, we have a huge responsibility, right? As Christians who have covenanted together to be a local expression of this kingdom on earth, we have a huge responsibility to reflect what this kingdom actually is to people who desperately need to be a part of this kingdom. And the best evangelism we can do is being healthy disciples that make a healthy local church that are healthily engaged in the mission of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we are indeed thankful for your kingdom. And Lord, help us not to take for granted those words, the kingdom of God. And Lord, help us not to take for granted the benefits of Your kingdom. Not Certainly, Lord, not the benefits that await us in eternity, but Lord, help us not to even take for granted the benefits that we can experience here and now of Your kingdom. 
Lord, far be it from us to take for granted the opportunity to be able to gather with other saints, to be in fellowship with other saints, to covenant together with other saints to do the work of the gospel. And so, Lord, give us a deep, burning desire and passion to be a people, to be a church that accurately reflects all that Your kingdom is and actively, ac- accurately points towards all that Your kingdom will be. And so, Lord, by our testimony, by the visible aspect of Your kingdom come and Your will be done, may our neighbors and the nations look at us and not see us, not be impressed by us, not be wowed by our ideas or our intellect or our knowledge, but may a lost and dying world look at us and see a kingdom that is totally different from anything they've ever known or could ever imagine. And may Your Spirit draw them, Lord, that they too may repent of their sins and believe on Your Son, Jesus, that they may be adopted into Your kingdom with us, that we might experience the benefits now, but that we might long and wait and celebrate the day when we will experience Your kingdom fully, which, as we've already seen, far exceeds anything our eyes have ever seen, our ears have ever heard, and that our heart could ever possibly imagine. And so, Lord, we long for that day. We wait for that day. But, Lord, as we patiently wait, we seek to obediently live out this gospel with the full benefits of the kingdom now. We ask all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. We want to encourage you to be able to engage with Locust Grove on a new level. We are now receiving questions. These questions can be theological questions, questions about the Bible, about biblical history, Christian history, church history, or even questions concerning contemporary moral and ethical issues. You can submit these questions in person when you enter our sanctuary in the vestibule. There's a box there for you to be able to write your questions and submit them. Or you can submit them online. You can reach out to us through our church email, locustgrovebaptistchurch at gmail.com, through our Facebook page, through our church website, or even through our podcasting platform. You can submit your questions directly to us at anchor.fm forward slash podcast. We can't wait to hear some of the great questions that you'll have. We can't wait to be able to answer those questions and make sure that the church, that the body of Christ, that disciples are well informed and well equipped to be able to go into this world and make much of Jesus. Mm-hmm.